I would encourage athletes um, on every level to reconsider what the win is mm -hmm. um, and to, to find other wins. Um, and we do it in education too. Did I get the A? No. Did you learn something? Probably, you know? Yeah. Um, I just failed at this relationship, right? Like it ended. Um, did I learn something? Did I gain something? You know, what was, what was really the purpose? And if the journey is the purpose, then I think there's a lot more wins than they are lose losses. This episode of the Smart Athlete Podcast is brought to you by Solpre, skincare for athletes. Whether you're in the gym, on the mats, on the road, or in the pool, we protect your skin so you're more comfortable in your own body. To learn more, go to solpre.com. Welcome to the Smart Athlete Podcast. I'm your host, Jesse Funk. My very special guest today is a two-time African champion in 100-meter hurdles. She was also a 2008 Olympian. If you had watched that games and you watch track and field like I do, you may have seen her there. She is an educator. We're at Philip Exeter Academy, where she's also coaching soccer and track. She has a new nonprofit she's working on called Just Heroes. It is to support athletes in high poverty schools in the U.S. Currently attending graduate school at UPenn, where recently she was awarded the Penn Warren Innovation Fund. She's a proud mom of an eight-year-old. And hopefully I'll get her name right. Welcome to the show, Queen Augustus. Thank you so much, Jesse, and I really appreciate you uh, and your effort to say my name properly and also for inviting me into this space. So super excited to talk with you today. Absolutely. Like, like I was talking about, we were, we were talking about before we got going. I always try my best. Uh, I can't always promise that I'm going to be 100% on the mark, but I'm, I'm going to get 100% effort and that's, that's the best I can do. So <laughs> <laughs> all good. Yeah. So um, Sometimes it's hard to restart. So if, if you're listening, um, we've been we've already been talking for like 20 minutes. So it, we always have to restart the conversation. And I I'm always like, uh, we, where do we go back to from here? Uh, so let's let's try to back up to maybe something we we haven't already touched uh, on the not recording section of our conversation. And and so I'll ask like I asked many people, I haven't talked to a hurdler yet, let alone an Olympic hurdler. How do you decide that's your discipline? Uh, you know, I guess I'll say the the most hurdling I did was I I did the hundred meter hurdles in eighth grade when I was twelve years old. Mm -hmm. I was not good at it, and I moved on. So, <laughs> where 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 did, where's your entry point, and how do you get going with that? Yeah, thank you for that question. Actually, what pops into my mind right away is as a coach, sometimes we say the event chooses you. Um, so you think you're going to come in and you're going to, you know, be a sprinter. I'm going to run the hundred, you know, and then it's like, yeah, no, you're not like your body wants to run the 800 and that will be what you run. So sometimes that's the, that's the choice. I did actually intentionally choose the hurdles. I thought it was fun and exciting. And I think there was something in my mind that liked to take on obstacles. So that was um, a choice that I made. And we also had a, a, a pretty decent high school hurdle coach, which don't always come by those very easily. No. So my coach, uh, Coach Williamson was pretty amazing. Um, and he taught us how to hurdle. And so I was very fortunate to have someone who had that technical expertise. Mm -hmm. and, um, and I learned that I was kind of fast. And so, <laughs> so as I you know, kept developing and excelling, I was like, this is, you know, I'm good at this and I'm gonna keep going, so. It's, it's one of those things where, 
I, the only thing that stuck to my, I guess, I guess I, I, I lied. And I didn't think about this because it's been such a long time. I did a steeplechase in college. So I have a little more experience mm-hmm. with hurdles, uh, but that's, they're not the same thing. Um, you can get away with much worse form in the steeplechase than you can, <laughs> than you can in the hundred. <laughs> you can even yeah. step on them. You cannot yeah. step on them in the hundred. Um, and I just, you know, even doing that and we were doing, you know, we'd be doing like 400 or 800 meter repeats on the track with the, with the hurdles or barriers on the track and just the coach yelling at us about stride over the hurdles. It's not a leap stride. Like <laughs> that's, that's the only thing that's stuck in my head. And, and the, probably the biggest misconception of, or like when people talk about it and maybe this has happened to you, I'd like to see if it has, I guess is what I'm getting is whether people ask you about jumping over the hurdles and you mm. have to be like, I'm not jumping. Like I'm just lifting my legs out of the way. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So absolutely. Like, um, so I'll, I'll just make like a distinction with the, uh, women's hurdles and men's hurdles that that height discrepancy mm-hmm. is uh, pretty big. And there have been some talks about raising the women's hurdles on the um, collegiate and professional level uh, to that 36 inch height, whereas mm-hmm. right now we're running 33 inches to supposedly make it more comparable with male hurdling. So, I, I mean, I don't know, I could throw in some ideas about, you know, male dominant culture there, but uh, I'll leave that maybe for another time. <laughs> but I felt that, uh, you know, it's not for women, it is not jumping, right? Like, we, like you said, we are actually attacking the hurdles and stepping over it as much as possible that the our inseam, right? So the length of our legs allow at that height to be able to just attack over the hurdles um, and kind of step over it. And for men, the hurdles are actually much higher. So there is actually more of a jump over right. the hurdles. So they do have to attack and raise their hips up. Whereas girls, we often draw a line across where the trajectory should be and your hips really shouldn't lift too much above that. Now, I'm kind of a short hurdler. So when I was starting hurdles, my coach is like, oh, you're too short to hurdle, right? Not actually not the coach I was talking to you about before. Um, the other coach, the head coach was saying that maybe I should just sprint um, and I wanted to hurdle. And so it was kind of fun, kind of proving him wrong as well. Um, but yeah, so for women, it's uh, it's definitely this attack over the hurdles and uh, overcoming obstacles in that way. Whereas for men, there is a, there's a jump, there's a distinct jump where the hips have to rise and then come back down and get to sprinting. So I, I, that leads to the question, I hope you don't mind me asking, how tall are you? I am all of a very strong 5'4". Okay. <laughs> Maybe 5'3 and three quarters, I don't know. But at this point, I think I'm shrinking. <laughs> that's, that's fair. <laughs> I don't think that's unreasonable. Like we, you know, did not have Olympic level uh, hurdlers at my school, but I mean, we had women that were about your height that did hurdles and were, you know, competing for conference championships. And like, I don't think that's an unreal, like if you were 411, I might be like, maybe we need to have a conversation, but you know, as you mentioned, the, 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 uh, event choosing you rather than you choosing the event. I don't know. I don't know. Like, Sometimes, and obviously I have no clue who the coach is. I've never met them. Um, but I, I think sometimes coaches get too much in their head about like, this is the way things are. Instead of just being like, more like, uh, let's we'll throw it against the wall and just see if it works. Like, cause there are always exceptions, you know, even if it was like, there's never been a hurdler under five, five, it's like, okay. I mean, 
if you watch the NFL now, like I can't remember the guy's name, but there are, there's a couple of guys that are like my height and shorter. I'm five ten, and they look absolutely tiny. Yeah. But they're like bulldogs. Like they, you, you, you can't be, you know, so it's like there was this preconception of you had to be six foot and taller. And then now they're coming in and doing their own thing because they worked their own game. So Absolutely. I'm off on a diatribe, but it, it's just, <laughs> no, I love that. <laughs> I just don't understand, you know, I, I, I don't know. Hopefully it was well-intentioned, I guess is all I'll say. Yeah, no, I think it is. I think it is. And there are some, there's value to thinking about how parts of hurdling will be easier if you're mm -hmm. taller. And if you're explosive, you can come overcome that, right? right? Like, so what someone sees as a deficit, another person can see as an opportunity. So I turned my, uh, well, I wouldn't say I turned it. I think that I had a skill and a talent in, in terms of power that I developed um, in order to make that difference work for me. Yeah. Um, and I think I love what you're saying about, you know, don't get stuck into this box of this is what um, an elite level hurdler should look like or, mm -hmm. or a thrower or a distance runner, because we come in all different shapes and sizes. And we often say, you know, like athletics is 90% mental, right? So right. if we truly believe these things, then what are we doing in order to like show that there is opportunity and possibility? And I think that goes across the board, even as an educator, and we've just come through COVID and trying to figure out like, how do we like manage with this difference? Um, and I'm like, well, how do we even build opportunity and innovate in this difference? And how do we make this difference not be like the one thing we can't wait to get over and be done with, but it turns into, hey, like we actually discovered some really cool ways to learn and teach. And so why don't we maximize on that and hold on to it as we move forward? So, yeah. And I'll just say that Gail Devers was, is 5'3", you know? So <laughs> <laughs> there weren't many 5'3 hurdlers, but Gail Devers slayed fire and, uh, you know, continues to be one of my all-time favorites. That's what, it's, it's this thing where like, you know, like you said in education and in, in, in athletics, it's like, there's these ideas, you know, I come from a distance running background. So it's like, there's this idea that you need to be rail thin or whatever. So it's like, mm. well, how many times, yes, there are definitely rail thin runners that do very well, but there are also ones that are not. And I am one of them that is not, not that I'm not lean, but just, I've never been like a pole. And that's something I, I talk about where it's like, there, there's, and I don't want to put words in your mouth here. And I am making an assumption. So I'll say that up front. I'm assuming you've, as a woman, have probably come under more fire for, how you look because that's typically what we do is we put women under a, a microscope about how they look as an athlete and just as a woman than I ever have but there's also a culture of like athletes are supposed to look this way or look that way or you know this preconception and even inside of the disciplines themselves like you said it's like you know uh like in my perspective with being distance running it's like you got to be so tiny and you it's like which leads to this whole culture of like underfed people basically. And then you end up with hormone problems. I just, again, I hope it comes from a well-intentioned place from the coaches that get stuck on those things, but it's like, I don't understand why you can't just go, well, like they're performing. 
it's fine. Like what, why are we, you know, being like, oh, you're not tall enough or you're not skinny enough or you need to do the exercises, do the work. Are they performing? End of story. Like I, I just, it baffles me that we have to f- like focus on that so much and, and then disqualify people because of that. Because as I said, like there always are exceptions and you're going to miss out on those if you're just like, this is the lane and that's it. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. For sure. Um, gosh, you said so many really great things in there. <laughs> Jesse. Um, you know, definitely don't want to limit people. And then, you know, just athletics in general as an avenue to uh, learn to, to overcome like adversity, whether it's mental or physical. Um, so that's coming to mind for me as you're just talking about um, fitting into boxes and, um, and then just the idea of um, the socialization, right? I think there's socialization that happens to all of us. And so as coaches, you know, we're not exempt from that as adults Mm -hmm. in educational spaces, we're not exempt from that. So we carry these ideas, these beliefs, these assumptions, these values with us as we're making decisions and as we're interacting and and, um, behaving interpersonally. And they, all of those actions together, like build culture. And then through all of that, like we're creating systems, right? And so I'm thinking about athletes who may, potential athletes who may have been left out of those spaces because they didn't fit into the box. Um, And, you know, which kind of brings me to an experience for me in high school where I wanted to play volleyball. I was like, I want to be a volleyball player. Mm -hmm. I was so down for that. And I didn't make the team because I was short. So again, it was this disqualification based on um, my body and like, I'm kind of good at volleyball, Jesse. I, you know, mm-hmm. I don't, I don't want any awards or anything for that. Cause I was never really a part of a team. And I feel like that could be my next sport. <laughs> <Up there. laughs> Might catch me on the beach somewhere, like trying to play volleyball. Um, but I do think about, you know, where would I be if I actually got to be on the volleyball team? Mm-hmm. Right. And so there's others who I know have probably been, um, disqualified, you know, from different spaces based on coaches or others believing that that's not a space for them. Um, And you also mentioned like my, you know, socialization in terms of body image and how that is much, I think more direct and um, poignant for females than for for men. Although I think in athletics, like we're constantly looking at bodies. Um, And also just, I think also as a black woman, just Mm -hmm. being in different spaces, it's like track works for you. You're black, you're probably fast, right? Whereas volleyball, the assumptions uh, aren't there, right? So, (laughs) well, the assumption that black people would be good at volleyball, right? It's a, I would say, you know, in, in the U.S. context, it's a it's a sport that is predominantly white, yeah. um, or let me say, pr- definitely not a sport that's considered a space where um, black people, you know, have gravitated. Yeah. Um, and there's systems that are in place, right? Like these right. are systems working to say whether it's systems that are already in place that we're just interacting with, or systems that we put in place as individuals and say right. from our beliefs, you're not tall enough, or I don't know why you don't really fit in this place like what are you actually saying let's talk about that yeah well so i'll say that i'm a systems builder in the sense that Mm -hmm. like i i'm building a company you're you're working on a company and you try to put systems in place so that you can step away and like your employees can do the things and, and things operate without you and i think what's as you're touching on what's what's difficult to conceptualize sometimes is the systems that are placed in society. And there's a whole 
ongoing conversation about that, um, especially in regards to black people um, and the systems that have been in place for a number of years, uh, the exact number of years, uh, I, I couldn't tell you off the top of my head, but a long time. Um, but what, what's difficult is when you are, uh, at first, just one individual. So you're only one perspective, you're only one mind, you've only lived your own experiences. Mm -hmm. I think if you haven't been affected by, noticed or touched systems that affect other people, sometimes it's hard to recognize the scope of them. Mm -hmm. Like just as, as much as I can try to empathize with you and your experience, I can, I'm, I'll never be a, a black woman. I just, it, it's, it can't happen. And so at, I always feel like at a core level, like I can empathize, but I will never like deep down inherently understand your life. I just, I just can't, I can, I can try my best, but I, there's no way to bridge the gap, you know, yeah. because we all live these different experiences. So it, yeah. that that's what I think, I don't know. I don't know, bothers me is the right word, but just it. I'm not sure how you, how you deal with it because you know societally we we put in systems. We have governments. We have you know private enterprises. We have people volunteering. We have people building nonprofits like you. All these systems and places to affect different people in different ways. And because our scope as individuals are so limited, mm-hmm. I think just having the broad enough perspective to understand those things is is simply difficult. Yeah, no doubt, no doubt, especially if we're trying to do it as an individual, right? So I think that's part of the challenge is that we have these systems and we recognize that these systems have all these different spokes, you know, and like they're connected in all these different ways. And yet then we in our one individual body want to be like, how do I change, right? And it's not possible, right? Mm-hmm. And that's why we talk about bringing more people to the table. So if we have multiple perspectives that are seeing the system um, and given access to seeing the system, then more minds can start thinking about what might be shifted within the system, right? So I think that that's one way that we can kind of make a situation that feels so big and so like, I don't know, like unreachable to to make it a little bit smaller um, and to make sure that the pieces of the system are actually talking to each other, Mm -hmm. right? And I think what we've done is we've created hierarchies. And so it's like, these people are in leadership and sure, they see everything. And so we let them make all the decisions, but we don't invite other people to the table to say, actually, you know what? The system isn't working for me. You know, like what might we do Mm -hmm. differently? Um, And I think part of that is this idea that too many hands in the pot is gonna make it really messy and then we're not gonna be able to get the thing done and we gotta get it done today and here's our deadline. And so these ideas of like resource scarcity, we talked about that before the podcast started, and these ideas of time scarcity really limit our ability to create and innovate. So when we talk about socialization about like, how someone sees my body or how I see someone else's body. There's socialization in how do we attack problems? What does leadership look like? Who should be leading? Um, And, you know, it's actually really fascinating because I was, I don't remember who I was speaking to and I really don't remember the culture. So I'm all like, crap, I can't even cite this, you know, (laughs) Um, but there's a culture somewhere um, where they're part of their governing process is to 
not have people stay in leadership roles for like extended period of, periods of time. Mm -hmm. And it's also not a voting situation. So instead of voting people into power and then those people stay in power and you have to like try to like influence people to vote for you and that kind of thing, it's that everybody gets to rotate. Everybody gets to do the planning at some point, right? Like it will at some point be your turn. And that for me created a situation like a mental theoretical situation where of course I'm gonna be accountable to you. You will also be accountable to me, right? Of course I'm gonna think about the least of us because that could be me. And so what it does for me is connects us in an empathetic way mm -hmm. to the ways in which we govern and, um, and the ways in which we treat other people and we feel compelled to do it in our kind of being as opposed to compelled to do it because we might get paid or we might keep our power right all of those things so it's a shared way of uh being in of dealing with power that i think is crazy and novel and oh my gosh let's try it you know like i'm so down like let's yeah. blow it up <laughs> well in the, the I think the difficulty with that, and we talked about this before we got going, is that like there are underlying assumptions that people might have that would prevent them from wanting to try something like that because there are two ways that you can go with that. So if, if you're gonna rotate you know, through everybody, mm -hmm. there is the idea, as you mentioned, where we could say, well, you know, I'll, you know, I will govern with best intentions because I will one day not be here and could be subject to somebody else's governance. And then there's the other way they go, well, they did this thing. So now I'm going to do this thing because they suck. And so I'm going to punish that, you know, and there's this like vindictive cycle. And it's like, as I mentioned before, we got going that the underlying assumption is that this of this zero sum mentality, where if you've got something, it was taken away from me. It's like, if somebody has that mentality, you first have to convince them that that's not the case before you can get them to a place to say, we can all work together. It's, it's I, I don't think it's enough just for me to say, no, it's possible for us all to win. Like it, it doesn't have to be, you know, if you have something, I don't have something. There are definitely cases where that is the case, but as a universal, I don't, I don't necessarily think that's true. And I think that's part of what makes some of these conversations difficult is when our underlying assumptions are all called, I'm a mathematician by trade. That was one of my undergrad majors. So axioms, so it's like the basic principles of, of your beliefs, these axioms, things that underpin your worldview when the basis of them are different or um, conflict. So like, say, I can't even think of a good example, but you know, say for some reason, I think the sky is red and you think the sky is blue. Those are fundamental differences in how we view the world. Mm -hmm. And if we're trying to decide on, you know, what kind of shade to put on the window to block the light coming in our under, you know, those underlying assumptions mm -hmm. are going to screw everything up and we're not going to get anywhere <laughs> because we're not even on the same page to start. And I, that's what I feel like is, is the thing that isn't really talked about is those, we, we talk about the issue, whatever the issue is, mm -hmm. but we don't get to those, the heart of the matter of what 
brings us to our perspective on the issue. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I, I think we don't get to the heart enough, period, right? The yeah. heart, you said the heart, and to me that was like, yeah, we're constantly thinking and thinking and um, we're very emotional beings. And I think part of the socialization is to pull us away from like that emotional space and pull us into this very cognitive space. And so, um, you know, and I think that we make decisions based on how we feel about something more than what we think. Um, and we we can rationalize our feelings all day, right? So it's right. like at, at the core of this, I think you're feeling something and you may not want to tell me you're feeling something, <laughs> and, you know, you don't want to be like, you know, get your, I'm sad today. You know, that's not always something people feel comfortable saying. And we've mm -hmm. kind of like taught ourselves that, like, don't be too emotional, you know, those sorts of um, drivers within our, our culture. Um, but when we get to the heart of like, why, why do you not want to do this? I think we get to the emotions, we get to the fear, we get to the scare, we get to the anger. Um, and you know, you, you spoke about, about that and why someone might make a decision to behave um, negatively in leadership based on, you know, getting back at someone. And so, mm -hmm. you know, there's a restorative approach, I think that we, we could take a cooperative approach to healing those mishaps and, and misses um, that would have to be incorporated into a new process, right? Like we can't keep being hurt and not get to the heart of, of what's going on. And, um, and we are, we're, um, we're wired to connect. And mm -hmm. I think that at the core of us, as we are thinking about what connects us, like, I've watched on a fundamental level with my students, like their desire to like not make waves and to like be cooperative because they actually do think about what will this person think about me? What will I think about them? And then we start teaching them like, well, don't care what people think. And I think there's a both and there. We, we do mm -hmm. have to care what people think and um, you should be able to think independently as well. Um, so how do we bring those things together and how do we deal with the challenges that come and not be afraid to do something different because there's a possibility that it might be hard or that it might not work out right like so i'm like is it working out now you know because if it's not like we we might could try something different um yeah yeah and you know this idea of like zero sum and it makes me think about competition and so as an mm. athlete i'm all like yeah let's compete i'm trying to win right well yeah and in athletics it is zero sum there's one winner <laughs> and that's that's the winner like it is zero sum and but you know that's where i think it's it's difficult because it's easy to conceptualize it's easy to conceptualize zero sum they won yeah. i lost yeah. end of story yeah and as a coach like I have kids who will finish a track event and, and I felt this way too. It's like, ah, oh, I just lost. I didn't win. Right. I didn't cross the finish line first. Mm -hmm. So then it's my job as a coach and as an athlete internally to think, well, what was I, what was my purpose? Was it only singular? Mm -hmm. Because if I'm only thinking about one purpose and one end game, then yeah, it can be very zero sum, but I could run a race. And if I'm running against Usain Bolt, then if I run my best race, I feel like I was still winning. You know what I mean? Like yeah. I just faced this guy, right? And I didn't win the race. I didn't cross the finish line first. But I just ran my best time. Or I just executed my best um, uh, attack out of the blocks. Or my third hurdle's been kind of shaky. And now I just, you know, exploded through that and I, I pushed through it. And mm -hmm. actually, you know what? I laced up next to Usain Bolt. Shoot, that's a win, you know? So yeah. 
these are things that uh, I encourage my students to process because if the only thing that you're hoping to do today is cross the finish line first, then you're missing the journey. Right. You're missing the big picture, right? And I need you to see that whole thing. Um, and also for my athletes, like I think about my 400 runners. Mm -hmm. When you're running the 400, if you're only thinking about like that last stretch and finishing, oh, your race is about to be botched. Yeah. You, know, you have to execute your race strategy mm -hmm. in order to hopefully cross the finish line first in order to get your next race better. Um, so yeah, I just, I, I would encourage athletes um, on every level to reconsider what the win is. Mm -hmm. um, and to, to find other wins. Um, and we do it in education too. Did I get the A? No. Did you learn something? Probably, you know? Yeah. Um, I just failed at this relationship, right? Like it ended. Um, did I learn something? Did I gain something? You know, what was, what was really the purpose? And if the journey is the purpose, then I think there's a lot more wins than they are lose, losses there. Well, it's, you know, we'll get to this at the end my, my my question for this year it involves failing but i i've talked about this at other times um so i ask a question to everybody uh for a given season one question for an entire year but you know so last year the last year's question so this was kind of along those lines is what's the purpose of sport mm. you know and everybody has a different idea about what the purpose of sport is but I don't recall, you know, of the 46 answers I got last year, I don't think anybody said to win. I don't think anybody said that. Yeah. And so it's like, what is the purpose of sport? There are, there are different purposes, obviously. It's why I asked the question. Cause I, you know, I have my own purpose. I mean, through my journey, um, I've won one race in my 20 years of racing. <laughs> And it was just a little, little thing, which it was a big deal to me. I almost cried at the end. Cause I did, it was 16 years coming, but yeah. you know, part of my journey was like, I want to keep leveling up as far as I can go and just keep getting my ass handed to me as much as I can, as high as I can go. I like, you know, I knew I didn't have the physical capability to ever be world champion, but I was like, We'll just, we'll see how far we can take the ride. And part of that's just the journey of self-determination. Like, you know, how far can I take it? You know, yeah. what am I capable of? I don't know until I do it. And I feel like, even though, like I said, I, I've won once in my 20 years of racing, I still... I take so much away from it. And I, I talk about this on the running show I do on the YouTube channel. So if you're just listening, you can go to the YouTube channel, youtube.com slash Solpri, S-O-L-P-R-I. Um, I, I talk about the things I've learned in running we, that have nothing to do with winning and losing, where it's like the things I love to talk about people like people with you about, where it's like, well, can we take anything we learned from our journey and apply it to the rest of our life or is it just like no you know in your case i was you know champion a couple times i'm not anymore so now i'm not worth anything it's like i don't think that's accurate right right <laughs> there's so, like there's so if you look at the parallels i always say running is life like mm -hmm. it, you can talk about it in 
the terminology that comes with running and apply it to life as a metaphor. But it, it, I feel like if you open your mind a little bit, that there's so much that's applicable in terms of, you know, being reflective, mm-hmm. not viewing failure as a, as a final resting place. Yeah. Um, even changing failure to be um, something else. Like when I was speaking with uh, Akil Abdullah, I keep coming back to this because he was such an awesome guest and he was a rower, Olympic rower. I can't remember if it was 2004 or 2008. Um, he said now he's in his, I think, mid forties. If things don't go well, he's not so hard on himself. He's just curious. Mm-hmm. Why, why didn't it go well? Yeah. And I feel like taking that perspective to just what we're doing every day, whether it's athletically or like, you know, in, in our case, both of our cases, launching a company, trying to reach people or reach, I'll call them customers. And that's not necessarily the right terminology for you, um, you know, or reach a new audience. It doesn't go well. Well, why didn't it go well? Right. You know, being curious. Yeah, Absolutely. No, hundred percent. Like I said, I, I agree with you. You know, you said running's life, and I think it's very much a journey. Um, and like the the purposes have changed for me, and they have evolved and developed. And at one point, it was like confidence and self esteem, and I was getting that. And then it was like you know, and that continues to be a piece of it. It's always about learning, learning about myself, learning about other people. Um, for me, like being in community, right? Like teamwork, like working together towards a mission, even though track is, uh, you know, arguably a, an individual sport, I've always done it with teams. Um, and so there's there's almost always been like a team aspect, except, you know, just one, the times when I, I'm competing um, uh, independently, but still I have Nigeria next to my name, right? Or I have, you know, uh, my training group when I, when I was in California competing with Evo track and there was people, there was people who were, who would grind with me in practice every day. And they'd be like, let's go Twain, let's go get up. We're doing this. Or I would say, all right, I'm doing this last one with you. Last one, best one. Let's make it work today. You know, we got to put in the work so we can see results so we can feel better so that we can know that we're doing something. Um, I have athletes who uh, will get sore after a hard workout and they're like, oh coach, I'm so sore. And I'm like, oh, you got evidence. You got evidence of the work you put in. Like, wow. And they're like, oh my God, I hate you. Why do you talk to me? You know, and I'm like, because I need you to change your perspective. Mm-hmm. I need you to see things in a different way. And you will carry these lessons with you outside of athletics and into the world. And what will you do with it? What will it mean to you when you're facing an obstacle outside of this space? Um, and how might you leverage it? And that's absolutely what I'm trying to do with Just Heroes is allow for student athletes to leverage these lessons, um, these mindsets, ways of being within athletics into other spaces and particularly for these students who are in high poverty communities to leverage those mindsets for social justice, to think about their identities and um, to have some self-awareness and to recognize how that plays within a system And then how might we change the system so that it does work for you, right? Like, Mm -hmm. why is your community high poverty? Like what? Why is there a whole community? (laughs) Why are there whole pockets of spaces with black and brown kids, unfortunately, Mm -hmm. that are really disadvantaged? And what might we do? Is it about, you know, uh, mindset shifts? 
Is it about, you know, coming down to the core, to the heart of it and considering mm -hmm. like how we build empathy and share stories? Um, and is it also about sharing power and shifting the hierarchy and laying that hierarchy on its side so that we're more collaborative and we're working together? Um, how do you envision it? Because you know what, you're in it, you're living this and I can't come to you and tell you, this is, this is what's gonna make life better for you. You right. know, and we do that, we do it. We're like, oh, you know, if you get that A and if you go to college and you know, this is the path for success. Um, what does it look like when they define for themselves and then we support them as educators, we support young people in developing um, innovations, initiatives, programs, um, policies, systems that work for them uh, where they show up because I heard somewhere like, I've never met a kid who did not love learning, but I have met kids who, who did not love school, something along those lines where the school, the institution is the problem. The mm -hmm. learning isn't. We're running through life learning all the time, learning about you. I'm learning about you today, Jesse. You know, I'm learning about how you've seen things and who you've talked to. Um, and that's exciting. But to have rote memorization and pass a test, uh, maybe not, not so much, not very exciting. Sit in this desk because yeah. this is how you see me learning best. I, no, to police my language, to police my body, to police my movement. Uh, doesn't feel like learning feels like it feels confining <laughs> yeah so um so these are these are questions i do think that we can take sports and we can think about how liberating sports can be and um consider how we can be liberated in other spaces as well and i'm i'm excited to do that with these young people hopefully uh soon one day as i continue to pilot this program and and you've said a lot, so I'll see if I can try to bring it all together. Um, all, all of my different thoughts as I'm like taking taking feverish notes. Um, talking about changing mindsets, you know, like, like the athlete talking about being sore and not, you know, it's a problem. And uh, <laughs> I, lo I loved your enthusiasm about it. you got evidence. It's like, yeah, you put in the work. So yeah. now you're sore. But it's, it's just like that. Well, that's the exact point, right? Where it's like it, your brain governs so much. I mean, you said at the beginning, I think, I think this was on the recorded part. I can't remember if there's a recorded part or before our recording now, but about athletics being, you know, 90% mental that we say that it's like your brain governs what your body's doing. It's not just, you got to get your body to do it. Like your brain's got to tell your body to do it. And it's much easier to make that connection when you have this positive association. It's not just like, so we, I convinced my coach in college to do this trick I read about um, from another coach who took his collegiate cross country team and, and brought them back to become their conference champions. And it was to run hills. And at the top of the hill, you have to say, I love hills. Okay. Because we have such a strong positive association with the word love mm. that if you repeat it enough mm -hmm. at the top of like, because people don't like hills, <laughs> people don't like doing hills, especially doing hill repeats and mm -hmm. they don't like doing it. And so, but if that is part of the program for you to say, I love hills, because you have such a strong association with the word love and it's so positive that if you do it enough, it helps break down that like 
icy interior of, of disdain for hills and they become like a more positive experience which makes you able to run them harder and with less fatigue because it's now a positive thing instead of this oh i gotta get over this it's this negativity inside your brain dragging you down yeah it's you've changed it into something else that is you know going to propel you forward or at least not hinder you instead of you know pulling yourself down so it's like that mindset shift is so so crucial in why like your role as an educator and a coach is so crucial to intervene in those early days with athletes when they're still young when it's like all right like let's let's take care of this now yeah you know even if so we're talking uh 12 to or 13 to 18 year olds Mm -hmm. roughly i mean in some ways that's still 13 to 18 years of experience but if you think about and i like to do this i think about what would the 80 year old me think and i try to think in that perspective it's like okay well if you're 13 like you still got 70 years to go like this is still early days early like if we get that if we get that fixed now like what kind of trajectory can you go on for the rest of those 70 years, you know? So that's what I was like, your role in in making that intervention is so critical at that such early stages, even though looking back, like at that age, it doesn't feel like early stages. You're like, no, like I'm I'm a big shot. I'm in high school. Oh yeah. They think they're grown. They think they're grown. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I mean, and in in younger grades too. Right. So Mm -hmm. when when kids start sports at seven and however old and you know for my eight-year-old right now like she's like I'm tired mommy and I'm like okay you're tired what does that mean I don't want to do it anymore and then I'm like okay so let's see if you can get just to that next hurdle or just to that next cone right so push a little further see Mm -hmm. your body could do it let's celebrate that Mm -hmm. right so there's lessons I think all the time and so I'm, I'm constantly coaching her like low-key like without being like crazy like track mom um, <laughs> just track crazy track mom, mom in my mind as like think about like how do I allow this to still be exciting for her mm-hmm. and fun for her and not like a drag right like she's yeah. tired because what she's chasing is feels too far mm-hmm. or feels like unattainable And so if I make the journey a little bit easier by creating benchmarks, then she doesn't feel as tired, right? She still has some motivation. And so we, I'm thinking about how do I do that? How do I get her to run a little further? How do I re-motivate her um, and not make this like so boring and like, you know, just don't kill the sport for the kids, please. Um, (laughs) Cause there's so much they can, they can learn out of it. Oh my gosh, something you said about the hills like really made me think about, um, have you ever done that? Like, I don't know if it's like a, you hold your, you hold your arm and then like you think a, someone pushes your arm down while you're trying to hold it out straight or something mm-hmm. like that. And you think, oh, I think it is arms out to the side straight and someone pushes down on your arms and then they ask you to think about something like think a positive thought like I got this I got this I got this and you're actually stronger than when you're like I can't do this so there is actually this like 
connection, this mind-body connection that, um, that is very real. So to your point of affirmations and positivity at the end of uh, a hill to kind of reprogram um, and to make us stronger and allow us to be able to do that hard thing. I totally believe in that. Like it's, it's so spot on. So I, I appreciate that. It's like, the, it's just like the interjecting with that, the negative self-talk and cutting out the negative self-talk. I even catch myself doing it now. I mean, you got to come back to it and be like, nope, like let's be mindful and get rid of it and get, get over it. But um, I, I, I want to ask how, so you kind of touched on this and, and I don't know what your daughter's doing, but um, how do you keep, how do you keep crazy track mom in check? <laughs> and I, and I, you know, obviously I don't know you that well, but I'm just saying like, you are, you're so, you know, it's such a high level. You spend so many hours you know, being like, there's so much of the fiber of your being that's been like a, a very competitive hurdler. Like, how do you keep that high level in check and, and make sure it's still fun? Yeah. Um, I actually don't find it that difficult, partly because my parents were like, you can run track if you want to, but those A's better come through. So, <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> so the model that I had was, this isn't your life. Like you have, mm priorities, you know, and their priority was education. And I could have gone the other side and been like crazy, you know, what do we call it? Like helicopter parent in terms yeah. of academics. Um, and they didn't go to the extreme there either. And they recognized the value, I think, of athletics. Um, so for me, I think that I had in my upbringing, kind of a balance with my parents not showing up to every track. In fact, my coaches were like, where are your parents at? You just won states, you know? And I'm like, ah. And so it did hurt my heart a little bit because I wanted them to show up and celebrate me and all of those great things. Mm -hmm. um, and it kind of kept it like, a, this is fun. I'm, I'm good at this. It's exciting. And there's other parts of me that are very important. And my mom is at home talking about some, um, you know, I really want you to remember that you are a Nigerian and I want you to go back and take care of home, you know, so that was a priority at home and then at school is, you know, very academic and then on the on the track it was like hey you can really be great on the track do you want to go to the Olympics and I was like whoa Olympics and someone introduced that idea to me. I didn't come up with it myself. So mm -hmm. um, I do think that I've been pretty balanced so I'm appreciative of that. And so when I start getting all how much better can she be? I start thinking, I didn't need that. I did awesome. I'm happy with how it all ended um, and the journey throughout. And I didn't need to kind of obsess. Um, and there was time, you know, I think sometimes with parents, it's like, we got to do it now or we're going to miss out on the next stage. And we're going to miss out on the next stage and we're going to get left behind. And again, these ideas of scarcity of time, scarcity of resources, they are oppressive. They're mm -hmm. oppressive to you. They are oppressive to your child. They are oppressive to society. And we really need to like back ourselves up and be like, we have time. We're okay. I'm okay. I am okay. My child will be okay. Um, and so those are, and, and I actually think about how it hurts kids and mm -hmm. I don't want to hurt my kid, right? Yeah. Like I don't want to obsess so much that um, she's not having fun that she's not joyful. Um, and I also recognize in this, like this hurts a little bit, but I'm okay. I think, I think I'm okay. I'm working on being okay with it. Like, she's like, 
butterflies and fairies and like woodland animals. She says, I'm a woodland fairy mommy. And I'm like, girl, okay. Um, so this is where her heart and her passion is. And she is like, she's a little engineer. She loves building and creating and mm -hmm. innovating all this. Like she's got these great ideas. And I'm like, oh, I really want to honor that. And mm -hmm. I want to hone in on that. I want that to grow. So I am so excited for all of her possibilities outside of athletics and it'd be nice if she got that scholarship and it's okay if she doesn't right yeah. Yeah. so she, she is very athletic um she's really good and she's hearing it a lot because other people in the world are like your mom's an olympian are you gonna be you know it's like oh my god yeah um and so i'm not gonna do she'll hear it from the outside that might be supportive but i'm not gonna do that to yeah. her she'll get it enough and if she continues, to, and I expose her, she's on the track, she's hurdling. I've taught her a little bit about hurdling with her mm -hmm. friend. Um, so we'll, we'll see how she, if she, if she bites, great. If she wants to be a woodland fairy, then we're on the stage and that's okay too. <laughs> yeah, yeah. All right, we're, we're starting to uh, wind out of time. I know, I know you got another appointment to come up here soon. So uh, I'll get to my question for this year for you. Um, I'm asking everybody, how do you stay motivated after failing to reach a goal? Oh, how do I stay motivated after failing to reach a goal? Um, I look to, what I do is I look to what's next. Um, I, and part of that is reflecting and coming to terms with that failure to reach a goal. And um, another piece is, uh, let me say this, failing often, um, so as an entrepreneur, like there's going to be several, several failures throughout. So, uh, I would say practicing failure beforehand by taking risks and trying new things on. And the more we put ourselves out there and we fail. So I feel like I've built that muscle. I've built the, the failure muscle in all of the times throughout my career and throughout life where I've put myself out there and I failed and it hurts and it hurts every time. Um, to be able to build the muscle to to accept the failure and then shift my mind to to move on to what might be next what door might be open that i'm not seeing um and so reminding myself of of those things the lessons the open door that i might miss you know if i'm stuck on the on the failure um yeah thanks um Twain, where, where can people find you where can they can connect with you see what you're up to all that kind of stuff yeah, so I am on Instagram at Hurdle Mama. That's H U R D L E M A M A. And I am kind of on Twitter. I'm sort of on there. I, there's an account. There is an account. <laughs> <laughs> Probably can't find me there very often. Um, I'm also on LinkedIn. And um, I, I will be on, uh, on the web at, uh, with, my, with my new venture very soon so it will launch on the hurdle mama account and we'll keep plugging from there and i'm here at phillips exeter academy coaching and teaching and we'll see what the world might have for me what the universe might have for me in the future but awesome. i thank you so much for this time jesse it's been great yeah. chatting with you yeah absolutely thanks for hanging out with me i i always appreciate having awesome conversations with people like you thank you